go back and get my water in case I need it. Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. I'll be preaching from Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7 today. The title for the sermon is an attempt to really encapsulize, make a summary point of these first seven verses of Psalm 95. Let's worship our great God today with songs and submissive hearts. That's in your bulletin there. Psalm 95, verses 1 through 7, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to come here and sing songs uh, to you and hear the, hear the preaching of the word and to enjoy fellowship with one another. And I pray that we'll learn uh, about worship today uh, through the preaching of Psalm 95 and we'll be better worshipers. So help us to do that. And, oh, God, we thank you for uh, sending your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for sinners. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who applies that redemption by effectually calling us, awaking us from the dead, and helping us to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then we are able to worship you. And that's what life is all about. So please bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the chief end of man? Famous catechism question. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to, and to enjoy him forever. Think about that. That's talking about worship. And when we think about worship, we think about worship in a few ways. One way is 24-7. That means uh, every hour of every day during the week, seven days a week. We worship God in how we treat people and how we live our lives. We're living sacrifices, well-pleasing to God. And today we're going to learn about corporate worship. That's the focus of this passage in Psalm 95, verse 1 through 7. We're going to learn about corporate worship. And I'm reminded of Jesus who said in John 4, 24, that we need to worship in spirit and in truth. And in spirit, it's talking about your attitude. We want to have a right heart attitude when we worship. And also, we want to worship in truth, according to the truth of what? The Bible. We want to worship God as he has revealed himself in the Bible. And... Uh, I thank God that we have the opportunity to worship him today. We can come to him and worship him because of the gospel, the good news of salvation, the forgiveness of sins by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's look at our text. Psalm 95, verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing 
to the Lord. Come is a command here. It's in the imperative. This come, it is a call to worship the Lord. My Bible has an exclamation point after the Lord to emphasize the fervency and the passion of this imperative to worship. Also, the text says, O come. It doesn't just say come. It says, O come. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Who is commanded to come? We are. The verse says, us, let us. This phrase, let us, is used repeatedly for emphasis. We see it in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 6. It's used six times there. O come, let us worship. Today, this is a call to public corporate worship for the people of God. The people of God originally addressed were the Jewish people in the Old Testament. They would be assembled at the temple in Jerusalem, and this call to worship would have been spoken by the priest to the Israelites. God's chosen people in the Old Testament was Israel. However, within God's chosen nation are the remnant, the elect, the elect who obey God by faith. These Jews were saved the same way we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They believed in the Savior to come, Jesus Christ. And we believe, we look back 2,000 years, we believe in the Savior who has already come, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament believers, how did they show their faith? One of the ways, they showed their faith by offering sacrifices on God's altar. These sacrifices represented Christ, the Lamb of God who was to come and die for sinners. And the, these Old Testament believers expressed heart obedience. They had soft, submissive hearts. They obeyed God as a way of life. They feared and obeyed God. But there was a tragic problem. Many Jewish people, people offered their sacrifices with a ritualistic attitude. They falsely thought that they could live disobedient lives and then, and then earn God's favor by offering various sacrifices. Listen to the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 and 23. And we, and we see God speaking here, and he says this, I hate, I despise your feast days, and do not save, savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. These Jews, they had hard hearts. They needed to repent with broken hearts and live by faith. They needed soft, submissive hearts to worship God in a way that pleases Him. One of my studies, study Bibles has a challenging quote concerning this. It says, our generation is characterized by pretentious religion. God is not pleased or appeased by meaningless ritual and insincere worship. No amount of offerings or praise songs can replace a reverent heart. Unquote. What is God looking for? What is God looking for? Psalm 51, verse 17 and 19 also applies to us. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole, whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. 
a broken and contrite heart before God. Godly sorrow over our sin that we sinned against our God, our Maker. Here's a question. How will God accept our sacrifices of praise to Him today? Part of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 tells us, we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We see who can come to worship today. Who can answer this call to worship? Those who have embraced the gospel to repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of, of their sins, for the forever forgiveness of their sins. By embracing in faith that Jesus Christ lived and died on the cross for you, taking your punishment for your sins, by doing that, you're saved and you can, then, then what? Then you can worship God. We are saved to worship God. Let that ring in your souls today. We are saved to worship God. By believing in the glorious gospel, we are able, we have access to, we can come into the presence of the God of all creation. So far, we're learning about this word come here in Psalm chapter 95, verse 1. This word come is really a gospel call. It's a gospel call for the people of, of God, Old Testament saints and New Testament believers. Let us come together to worship God. The repetition of the phrase let us is important. It's a way, it's a way we invite and encourage each other to be faithful to come together to worship on the Lord's Day here at Calvary Baptist Church. And this lines up with the Bible in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, which says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. True believers, true worshipers, love to come to worship God in spirit and in truth. Think about this. The joy of coming here to Calvary week after week. Is that your heart attitude? We can examine our hearts with Scripture. Examine your heart with Psalm 122, verse 1. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Look again at Psalm 95, 1. Who are we singing to? Who are we singing to? Yes, we're singing to the Lord. And notice, this is in all capital letters. That's important for Bible interpretation. All capital letters. That means this. This is referring to Yahweh. Anytime you see this in your Bible, Lord, in all caps, you can read that as Yahweh. Or you could even say Jehovah. Think about the original re uh, recipients of this psalm, the Jewish people. This name for God, Yahweh, it was very precious to them. Very precious. Yahweh is God's covenant-making and covenant-keeping name. Yahweh or Jehovah, he is so faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Yahweh is the Hebrew personal name of God. Think about this. They knew their God by name. Yahweh was the name above all names for them. Just like Jesus is the name above all names for us. So when the Jews heard, sing to the Lord, sing to Yahweh, what would that do? Their hearts would be set aflame. God is speaking to us today through the voice of Scripture here. Today, if you will hear his voice. Oh, come, let us join the exuberant chorus of the faithful Jews in the Old Testament with respect to the name of Yahweh. Listen to Psalm 111, verse 1. 
Psalm 111, verse 1, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Hallelujah. You probably know that hallelujah is Hebrew for praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We love to sing to Jehovah, the rock of our salvation. The Lord is called the rock of our salvation in the second part of verse 1. Do you see that in your Bibles? We are singing to the Lord, who is identified as the rock of our salvation. We are worshiping in truth according to how God has revealed himself to be here in the Bible. Let us sing softly. There's a time for that. Is that what this is saying? Let us sing softly? No. The Bible says here that we are to sing loudly. Loudly here. We see this by the phrase shout. 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 Joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Your Bible may say, make a joyful noise. Both of these phrases, shout joyfully or make a joyful noise, are repeated in verse 2. We have a repetition to emphasize the point here. The point is emphasized is this, God-focused enthusiasm. God-focused enthusiasm. That's what the psalmist intends here. When the Jewish worshipers heard, shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, what would they think of? They would think of the massive, unshakable foundation of their God. They would think of the Lord, Yahweh, as referring to their father with respect to the nation of Israel. According to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4a, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 to 4a, quote, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, the Lord Yahweh is called their father. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 18. Psalm chapter 18. I'm going to read Psalm chapter 18, verses 1 and 3, and possibly may add a few verses. I'll decide in a moment on that. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to read this for insight with respect to the rock and the term salvation. And notice, this is very helpful here, that's what's called a superscription above verse 1. And this superscription tells us the, the historical context uh, for the psalm. David is praising Yahweh for delivering him or saving him from his enemies, including King Saul. Psalm 18, verses 1 through 3. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock in my fortress, in my deliverer. My God, my strength, in whom I will trust. My shield in the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. I will call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Here, the Lord, all capital letters again, Yahweh, is called the rock. The term salvation here is not salvation from sin, but salvation from David's enemies. Notice the name rock appears with other names, and these other names are military metaphors, military metaphors, and they're emphasizing God's role as a divine warrior, his role and his rule as a divine warrior. Be encouraged, as with David, there is always a way with Yahweh. There is always a way with Yahweh. Let us shout joyfully, sing with a, what kind of enthusiasm? A holy enthusiasm. 
Shout out and amen or praise the Lord. Maybe even clap your hands to Jehovah for giving us the victory in life's tough battles. Let's consider now what the Jews would think of with the combination of rock and salvation. In Psalm 95, 1, they would think back to their deliverance or salvation from what? From Egyptian bondage, which we read today uh, together in Psalm 136. They would remember the blood being applied to the doorposts and lintels of, their, of the doors of their houses uh, to prepare for what? For the tenth plague, so that the death angel would pass over them and not slay their firstborn sons. Later, with the exodus from Egypt, the term rock would have brought to mind the water that flowed out of the rock in the wilderness to deliver them or to save them from their physical thirst. What do we think of when we sing to the rock of our salvation? Yes, we think of Jesus Christ. He is the rock of ages in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 4. We joyfully sing. Think about August Top Lady's rock of ages. And here are the first three stanzas of that. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's commands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He alone is the rock of our salvation. He is the solid ground on which we stand secure forever in our salvation. Not only are we to sing joyfully, Psalm chapter 95 verse 2 tells us that we're to sing thankfully. We're to sing thankfully. I'm going to read Psalm 95 verse 2, the first part, or 2a. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us come before his, his presence with thanksgiving. The psalmist exhorts us to come before God's presence with thanksgiving. Into God's presence. What does that mean? That means before his face. This is sweet fellowship with God. Cheerful communion with him. How can we possibly come into the presence of the one and only holy God? True believers, true worshipers, have had their sins forgiven and they have been clothed with the holiness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how the barrier, the barrier of sin has been removed. We can enter in by the blood of Jesus Christ. What is the Christian's heart response to our text, which again says, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. What is the Christian's heart response? The answer is found in next week's sermon by Mr. Greg Ho. However, I'm going to give a sneak preview here. Psalm chapter 27, verse 8 says this. Psalm chapter 27, verse 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Ask yourself, is that my heart's attitude? Is that my heart attitude? My heart's desire. 
This context in verse 1 and 2 calls us to worship with thankfulness. Think about this. This is an unusual way to put it. A, a thundering thankfulness. A thundering thankfulness. Yes, even though we are in the presence of God, we can come boldly as long as we have submissive hearts. The end of verse 2 tells us that we are, we are shouting joyfully or making a joyful noise with psalms. You may have been wondering about this joyful noise thing, and I have a little, a little bit of an idea about it now after studying, and hope I can explain that a little bit. Your translation um, may translate the word for psalms as songs of praise or music in song. The end of verse 2, we are shouting joyfully or making a joyful noise with psalms. And what are psalms? They're songs. Psalms are songs accompanied by musical instruments. The psalms are sometimes called the hymn book of Israel. Think about how vibrant and vigorous our worship is to be when we put all this together. For example, consider the musical instruments from Psalm 150. We praise the Lord according to His excellent greatness with trumpets, lutes, harps, timbrels, string instruments, flutes, and cymbals. Not just cymbals, but clashing cymbals. Yes, now you can see why at times this is appropriately called a joyful noise. This call to worship is to be appropriately balanced. That's something maybe we're going to learn today a little bit. It's hard to teach you guys something new. This call to worship is to be appropriately balanced by this second call to worship in verse 6. And we're going to get to that later. Theology produces doxology, the praise of God. As Pastor Bobby explained last week, our knowledge of God produces joy. Knowing who God is and what he has done for us produces joy. And there's so many different ways to think about joy, but joy doesn't really change because joy is not, de really, it's not dependent on our circumstances because our circumstances change. Our joy is based on what doesn't change, the rock of ages, that's Jesus Christ. Having a personal relationship with him, that is joy, no matter what our circumstances. And our pastor also talked about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means to be controlled by the Spirit in obedience to the Word of God. Why am I bringing that up? Because this results in speaking to each other in psalms, according to Ephesians 5.19 and also other types of songs. The result of being filled with the, with the Holy Spirit is joy, he mentioned that, and also thankfulness. And another thing, it produces a submissiveness to each other in the fear of Christ. Christ has made us cheerful, so we sing psalm, psalms with joy and thankfulness. To who? Our great Savior. The rock of our salvation, you could say that's our great Savior. Our great Savior is also our great God and great King, according to Psalm chapter 95, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. This word for, we learned about this in Sunday school today. This word for means because in this context. We come to worship today because... The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the great God and the great king. Great God and great king, they go together here. But first, think about this. Great God, what does that mean? That means that he alone is God. He alone is awesome. He alone is great. 
Therefore, he alone is to be greatly praised. Our goal is to greatly praise God as, la as laid out in verses 1 and 2. For the Lord is the great God because he is the great God. Now, before I show the, the, the connection between great God and great king, we need to remember something. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, it says this about our great God. Before the, mount, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever yet formed the earth, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is great in his being. This is the self-existence of God. God is great in his being. He has always been great from eternity past. Our God was great even before he created time, space, and matter. God has always been great even before he created the universe. Therefore, his greatness does not depend on his creation. The creation is really an expression of his greatness. We're going to see this in this context. The creation is really an expression of his greatness. However, our text, what it does, it connects God's greatness with creation. We're going to see why. Please look at Psalm chapter 96, verses 4 and 5. The best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. We already learned that our great God is the great Savior as the rock of our salvation. Here the focus is on a specific aspect of his greatness. He is the great king above all the false kings. He is the great God above all the false gods. By comparing 95.3 with the text we just read, look at 95.3. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. We compare that with what we just read in 96 verses 4 and 5. We see that the false gods, they're idols. They are nothing. They don't exist. Let's call it like it is. These, these idols are fakes for fools. However, we have to be careful. Let us remember, lest we be deceived. These so-called gods are sometimes manifestations of demons. But they are not gods. I want, you to look, I want you to look at Psalm 95, 90, 95, verse 5. Pardon me, that's Psalm 96, verse 5. I want you to look at Psalm 96, verse 5 again. But the Lord made the heavens, in Psalm 96.5. But the Lord made the heavens. There is a subtle but huge connection between that right there, Psalm 96.5a, and Psalm 96.5b. It is this. The fake gods are nothing because the Lord, Yahweh, he made the heavens. Look back again at Psalm 95, verse 3. For the Lord is the great God and the great King above all gods. And now look at verses 4 and 5. 
In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. In his hands formed the dry land. First of all, going back to verse 3, for the Lord is the great God and the great king above all gods. This is a poetic way of declaring these other gods don't even, don't even exist. There is only one God. Furthermore, Yahweh's creation of the universe is the foundation of his greatness as king. The Lord, Jehovah, is the great creator king. Our great God is also the great king because he is a great creator. As the great king, he rules and reigns in majesty and splendor. He alone is sovereign. It means he's in control. He alone is the living and true God. He alone is most worthy of our worship. He is mo most worthy of our worship. Now we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 again. 4 and 5, this, th these verses give us another reason to joyfully worship, to thankfully worship the Lord. Yahweh is the great creator. I'll read those verses again. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The height, heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it in his hands form the dry land. Notice here, we have the word, I already mentioned that, pardon me, in verse 3, we have the word for. So we're continuing um, with that. Yahweh is the great creator. Jehovah is the great sovereign over all his creation. Consider the first part of verse 4. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. Consider that. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. My John MacArthur study Bible helps out here, and it says, The deep places of the earth refers to the depths of the seas, valleys, and caverns in contrast with the hills. The point is that God was not a local God like the imaginary gods of the heathens, usually put up in high places, but the universal creator and ruler of the whole earth. Unquote. It is important to consider this historical context for the way God's creation is described here so that we can better understand how profoundly this would affect the Jews who originally heard this psalm. That's why I'm doing that. The pagan nations around Israel, they worship false gods for the sea, the land, mountain peaks, the sun, moon, and stars. In other words, the pagans had local gods for the various parts of the world. And they thought of these local gods as kings who exercise authority over the people in that area. In tremendous contrast to all this pagan idolatry, which, by the way, as you know, this was constant. It seemed like a constant snare to the Jews. We feel the weight of this mighty truth. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, is the great creator and ruler of the entire world. Psalm chapter 95, verse 5a says this, The sea is his, for he made it. The sea is his, for he made it. God is sovereign over the sea he created. For example, here is Psalm chapter 135, verse 6. In Psalm 135, verse 6, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deep places. The next time you're at the shore, admiring the glory of God in his beautiful creation of the ocean, enjoying the crashing waves in the seashore, remember God's power. Remember God's power and his authority. From Job chapter 38, verse 11. In Job chapter 38, verse 11, when I said, that is God, when I said, 
This far you may come, but not farther. In here your proud waves must stop. Within the historical context of the psalm, the mention of seas would have brought to mind the Red Sea. The Jews would be reminded of the rock of their salvation with respect to the miracle of the crossing of the Red Sea as by dry land. The Egyptian army was about to destroy them. When the Egyptian army tried to cross the Red Sea, God crushed them with the water. After this, the Jews sang a song of Moses to celebrate this deliverance, this salvation from Egyptian bondage. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. Now back up a couple of verses. The verse, chapter 14, verse 30. And I'm going to read through 15, verse 7, and also verse 11. Exodus 14, 30. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. He has chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. In verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful or awesome in praises, doing wonders? Do you feel the weight of these passages? Please turn back to Psalm 95, verse 6. Now we're better prepared to appreciate Psalm 95, verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This verse is actually the second call to worship in Psalm 95, the second call to worship. As a matter of fact, this is probably the main verse in Psalm 95, verse 6. Let's first contrast this with the first call to worship in verses 1 and 2. There we see jubilation for Jehovah. Jehovah, We shout joyfully. Yes, shout does literally mean to shout out something, like an amen or hallelujah, praise the Lord. But remember, verse 2 speaks of coming before God's presence with thanksgiving. That's interesting. Because when we think of coming into God's presence, we rightfully think about fearing God. 
having reverence for God, being in awe of Almighty God. Here we learn that fearing God and rejoicing in God are not in opposition, opposition to each other. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11. Psalm chapter 2, verse 11, reinforces this truth. Serve or worship the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Did you hear that? Rejoice with trembling. True worship should have biblical balance. Biblical balance. For example, I'm just going to scratch the surface on this. For example, traditional worship may sometimes seem, traditional worship may sometimes seem mechanical and formalistic. Also, enthusiastic singing may be missing. In this type of setting, joyful noises, such as an occasional spontaneous clapping with an amen or a praise the Lord, are, are conspicuously absent. On the other hand, we have some contemporary worship services, contemporary worship services that seem more entertainment oriented. Some even like a rock concert. In addition, they have shallow, man-centered lyrics without much, without much theology. The fear of God seems replaced with fun. And one thing I appreciate about Calvary Baptist Church, there is a conscious effort to strive for biblical balance with the music. And we can see this in a few ways. One, we start off, we have a traditional hymn at the beginning. And also, the, uh, the songs that we sing, they're carefully chosen for a couple reasons. One, they're carefully chosen uh, to correspond with, with the strong doctrinal statement we have here, which is very biblical. And also, um, it's easy to see that those songs are picked that are uh, congruent, that go along with and supplement and complement the, the actual preaching of the word. Theology does produce doxology here. And most importantly, most importantly, the music and everything else builds up to the most important part of the worship service. And that is the preaching, preaching and listening to, the, to the God's word. And listening with the, with the desire, with the, with the goal to listen to it and obey it for God's glory. Now let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. And then we're going to read verse 6. Verses 1 and 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. And now verse 6. Again, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Do you hear the change in tone? There's a change in tone here between these two calls to worship. We go from singing to humble silence. We go from jubilation to adoration. We are humble to the ground because we have seen our great God high and lifted up. Our text says to worship and bow down. What does bow down mean? That means to prostrate yourself. To prostrate means face down on the ground. Being in the presence of God, the face of God, it causes us to tremble, to tremble in reverential fear and awe. In the Bible, we see examples of people literally dropping to the ground when they encountered the presence of God. One example, Paul was knocked off his horse and temporarily blinded when he was converted to Christ in Acts chapter 9. However, 
the point emphasized here in verse 6 with bowing down, we're really talking about this, the necessity of having the right heart attitude in our worship, having the right heart attitude, bowing down in your heart. To bow down in submission means to humbly come under the authority of our great king. And it also means, I'm thinking about it, I just mentioned preaching, it means to come under the authority, to lie, to lie low under the preaching of, of God's word. So between these two calls to worship, we move from a singing, a singing proclamation to speechless adoration. We have submissive hearts that bow to the authority of our great God. We worship Yahweh by being in total submission to his biblical commands. This bowing is a lifestyle of total surrender. It's so many different ways to think about this. It's self-denial, a dying to selfishness. That's a daily challenge. We joyfully encourage each other to do this. Let us come together and worship. We joyfully encourage each other to bow down in worship before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We also worship God by kneeling before Him. We see this in verse 6. By kneeling before Him. Our scripture says, Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. What does kneeling on our knees bring to mind? Humble praying. Kneeling was one of the many ways we see people praying in the Bible. Bowing is closely related to kneeling also. And we see that, for example, with the Apostle Paul, again, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father. And one of the things we learned in our Sunday school lessons about a year ago on prayer, prayer is worship. Prayer is worship. This is biblical worship. And we see that here. This is biblical worship to have our worship services saturated with prayer. This is well-pleasing to God. I'm going to read verse 6 again. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. There are actually three Hebrew words here used. They all mean bow, but there's nuances to these words. But they all mean bow. To worship means to bow. To kneel means to bow. And to bow means to bow. And do you see the focus here? This could be literally translated in a, in a non-poetic, wooden kind of way. You could translate it this way. Oh, come, let us bow down, bow down, bow down before the Lord, our maker. You see the point there? We bow down in humility before who? Before the Lord, our maker. He made us for this. We were created to give him the glory due his name. Many definitions of worship. And this is a good definition right out of Scripture. And it's exemplified in Psalm 96, verses 7 and 8. If you could please look at that. Psalm 96, verses 7 and 8. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Give to the Lord the glory due His name. God, He is so worthy. He is so worthy of our worship. God is worthy of our worship. Amen? Look at Psalm 95, verse 7. Psalm 95, verse 7. And notice 
that it begins with the word for, and this for means because. Think about this. Not only do verses 1 through 5 provide reasons for answering the call to worship in verse 6, but verse 7 gives us a formal, explicit reason, reason here. Look at Psalm 100 and verse 3 for a good cross-reference for that. Psalm 100, verse 3. And what's interesting about Psalm 100, uh, verse 3, is that it actually it correlates to two verses. It correlates to verses 6 and the verse 7 in our text today. Psalm 100, verse 3 says this. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people in the sheep of his pasture. The Lord, all caps there, Yahweh, Jehovah. He is our great Savior. He is our great God. He is our great King. He is our great Creator. He is our great Maker. And he is our great Shepherd. He's our great Shepherd. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture in the sheep of his hand. The Old Testament Jews, they were familiar with the shepherd metaphor. It expressed Yahweh's tender love and special care for his people. What comes to your mind when you think of the Lord Yahweh being a shepherd? Yes. I bet you're probably thinking of Psalm chapter 23, Especially Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Part of Psalm chapter 95, verse 7 says, The sheep of his hand. Wow, think about that. The creator of the universe has his creation in his hands, and he also has you individually, if you're a believer, he has you individually in his hand. We bow down in humble dependence as our shepherd takes care of us. He takes care of us. He is our God. Think about how personal and intimate that is. The great shepherd knows each of his sheep by name. And the sheep know the lovely voice of their shepherd. They hear his voice, they love his voice, and they follow their shepherd. Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Jesus is the good shepherd in John chapter 10, verses 11 and 14. Jesus says in both of these verses that he lays down his life for the sheep. And the sheep are his sheep given to him by the Father. Jesus laying down his life for his sheep, what's that referring to? That is referring to his substitutionary atonement on Calvary's cross for his sheep. He took their penalty of sin. He paid that debt. In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus said this in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Think about that. Oh, the blessing of eternal security in Jesus Christ. Think about this. Those, the Bible says in Romans 8.30, I learned this in Sunday school today, I was reminded, 
It says those that are justified will be glorified. So glorification is such a for sure thing. If you're justified, you will be glorified. You'll get a new body, see Jesus face to face. It's such a for sure thing that it's written in the past tense in the Greek in the New Testament there. That's awesome. Think about that. Eternal security in Christ. What a huge, uh, what a colossal reason to worship him. This brings us to the last part of verse 7. And it is connected. Think about this. It is connected to the next stanza with verse 8. Today, if you will hear his voice. That's con it's, it's in 7, but it's connected to the stanza in verse 8 because this phrase is often viewed as the introduction to the next section. And that God, God willing, I'll be preaching the remainder of Psalm 95 in two, in two weeks. And I'll finish the rest of Psalm 95. However, think about this phrase right here. Today, if you'll hear his voice. I came across something in my research. So this is not original to me. Very interesting um, idea here. This can be viewed, I believe, as a transition phrase here. A transition phrase. So as a, transition, a transitional statement... This phrase can be a conclusion to today. It's actually a part of verse 7. It can be viewed as a conclusion to this section of Scripture. And it also, as a transitional statement, can be viewed as an introduction to what follows after that. And I'll develop that more next time. Think about this. As a conclusion, today, if you will hear his voice. Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice If you do, you're one of Jesus' sheep. To hear here is Hebrew for Shema. Shema. It means to he not just to hear, but to hear with the intention of obeying, to hear and obey God's word. In the book of Hebrews, this is interesting, it identifies this voice here as the voice of the Holy Spirit. We hear his voice, the Holy Spirit's voice in the Bible. Examine your hearts. If you love and obey the voice of God in the Bible, if your heart's desires to worship God with joy and thankfulness and submissiveness, you are one of Jesus' sheep. This means that you have repented of your sins and have believed in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. He is your Savior, and you are following Him as your Lord. I want to finish with an illustration. A little unusual for me. I want to have an illustration and also a quote from um, a commentator that drives home the main verse, which I think is the main verse in Psalm 95, and that's verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. A man was touring an art gallery observing the beautiful masterpieces on display. As he approached one painting in particular, he recognized it as a rendering of the crucifixion of Christ. He stopped and stared at its majestic brushstrokes and stunning depiction of Christ's death. As he was observing the painting, a tour guide approached him, motioning for him to lower himself. If you want to truly appreciate the beauty of this painting, you must assume a lower position. 
The artist intended it to be viewed from a lower posture. So the man bent down. Lower, the guide responded, motioning with his flashlight. The man followed the instruction and bent over lower at the waist. No, no, the persistent guide responded, lower still. Finally, the man was bowed down, kneeling on the carpet, looking up at the canvas painting. Only now, from such a lowly posture, could he behold and appreciate the true beauty of the masterpiece. And the commentator says this in response to that. This is the only proper posture for worshiping God as well. All who, who would approach God must bow down before him. All worshipers must lower themselves in the Lord's presence. Those who would rightly approach God must look up from a humble posture if they are to behold the transcendent glory of God. Only in kneeling before him can we worship him as we should. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Psalm 95 because it's your word and it teaches us and instructs us how to better worship you, God, in spirit and in truth. So help us to be better worshipers. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to sing with joy and thankfulness and also help us to have the right submissive heart attitude and to bow ourselves down before you, God, in humble submission. You are a maker. We want to live for you. You are, you are the great God and the King of kings and Lord of lords. So help us to uh, worship you better corporately and also help us to worship you uh, during the week, uh, day by day, so that when we do come together, it's even a better corporate worship um, experience. Please, oh God, please drive these truths uh, into our hearts and help us uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to be more conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, the name of all names. In his name we pray. Amen.